there, picking up in verse 25. It's kind of funny, I was thinking, well, how much do I actually recall of, uh, of the message? And uh, would have been interesting. And of course, being a long weekend, it would have been a really short message, so everybody would have been rejoicing. Well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And again, we ask that you would speak to each and every heart about your great love, your great plan for each and every one of us. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, last week we were reading about how God used a very unlikely means to get the gospel out, and one of them was persecution, because persecution had uh, come on the whole church. And uh, one of the things you don't hear a lot about in the church today uh, with this philosophy of triumphism, triumphant kind of overcoming, joyous living, which I believe is an experience that we can have as believers in the Lord. But if we were to basically say that's the only experience that we have as Christians, I think a lot of people would say that's not really lining up with reality. And so we realize that there is a lot of different uh, things in life that bring heartache and pain into this world and into our lives. But in this particular occasion, the early church was preaching the gospel and the gospel was stirring things up. And the text tells us that persecution came on the whole church. As a result, the church basically moved out out of Jerusalem and into Judea and to Samaria. And as they went, they weren't feeling sorry for themselves. They weren't telling everybody their sad story. But what they were doing is is that they were telling everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ and they were preaching the gospel as they went. Now, whether they realized it or not, this is exactly what God said would happen in the Old Testament. He basically said that the gospel is for all of the world. Now, for the Jews, they were very exclusive people. They viewed themselves as the covenant people and therefore... Anybody that was non-Jewish really didn't have much of a, uh, let's say, high ranking (laughs) in their uh, system as far as being worthy of the good news. But God had a different plan because uh, God is a God that doesn't have a color. He is a God that is for every color, for every nation and every person. And believe it or not, God loves the people that we don't like. Let me say that again. God loves people that you don't like. It bothers me when I think about it, but but it's true. And so we meet a young Saul for the first time in the Bible, and he is uh, less than friendly towards the Christian movement. As a matter of fact, he holds the garments while Stephen is stoned, And then in chapter 8, we see him breathing threats, hating the followers of Jesus, and he is persecuting them relentlessly, kicking down 
and dragging people away uh, to prison. And we read some of his testimony in different letters that he wrote to different churches, and you could tell it was a great sense of pain to him when he looked back on his life of how he treated the Christian church. And so, all of that to say is that the church scattered and they took the gospel wherever they went. And even the anger of man and this demonically inspired hatred of his church could not suppress or stop the purposes of God for the gospel. And rather than bringing a halt to the gospel as it was intended to do, the persecution had the exact opposite effect and the gospel began to spread even quicker. And so what they were hoping for by bringing opposition and persecution on the church had the exact opposite intended consequence. Instead of stopping it, it spread it, which is, yay God, boo-hoo devil, because that's what God does. That's what God does. So, thank you. And so, as we come to uh, uh, Acts chapter 8, here's what the Bible says about the persecution. It says, Therefore, those who were scattered and went everywhere, preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Yeah, I guess there was. I've never been in a city where the lame and the paralyzed have been healed, and Joe, who was a cripple, now is working and walking and praising. I mean, the whole city would be filled with joy. It'd be quite something to actually be there and to look at all of the things that were going on. Joy would be a great word to describe it. Verse 25 of the same chapter said that when the apostles had testified and preached uh, the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So here you have the despised Samaritans having the gospel preached to them. Uh, that just blew Jewish minds to smithereens because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other with a great vehement hatred. They were sworn enemies. Uh, one of the rabbis' prayers in the early days, uh, rabbis would thank God that they were not a woman and that they were not a Samaritan. And that's why I'm not a rabbi. Because I thank God for women and I thank God for Samaritans. Now, I have a deep spiritual truth that I need to share with you, and that is God loves the Samaritans in your life. You might not. You might hold them in great contempt, but <clears throat> Jesus loves the Samaritans in our lives. And uh, <clears throat> you should pray for the spiritual Samaritans in your lives because he loves them. And you could ask God to make them trophies of his grace and witness I are. Because remember, you can have Samaritans in your life and you can be a Samaritan in somebody's life. 
And I'm sure I've been both. If you stick around here close enough, I'm sure I will be. Because I always say my job is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So we might have trouble loving those Samaritans in our life, but God has no trouble at all loving them. And the great promise and encouragement is, is as we yield to the Holy Spirit, He can work in our lives to give us the power to love them as He does. That's the promise. And we know that the born of God loves. He loves God and He loves even the Samaritans in His life. And even though we might have problems getting there, there is no doubt in my mind that we are constantly in the process of being taken on that journey by the Holy Spirit to get there. And God is patient with us. You know, He's patient with us. And uh, He's relentless with us as well. You know, if I forget about that person, you know, it'll go away. It doesn't go away. God just says, no, I love that person, therefore you love them. And it takes us a while to get there, but God has a way of, of getting us there. Amen? So, we come now to our story in verse 26 because we're following the ministry of this guy named Philip. And Philip, we met at the beginning of chapter 6 as a man that was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he was chosen by the apostles. He was put forth by the church, chosen by the apostles, basically to serve tables. That was his job. So to serve tables in the New Testament, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit and love and power and faith. So anybody that wants to be in hospitality ministry, you know what the requirements are now. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and power. So here's what the Bible says in verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go towards the south. Along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is desert. Anyone been in a desert in your life? I mean, not a pretensy one, like a, the real deal. Don't give me this, give me this. Yeah, if you've been in a real desert, not fun places to be. Okay to visit, not to live. So, there's a couple things that kind of caught my attention when I read this verse. The first is, is that people are important to God. People are important to God. Not just lots of people, but a person. Philip's ministry began as a humble deacon waiting upon tables, doling out the widow's portions in the Jerusalem church. And then the persecution hits and he goes north to Samaria. And though he was not an apostle or a pro, God's power used him mightily to go to the despised Samaritans and a large number of them believed and the, good, uh, and the good news was preached, and many were saved, and there was great joy in the Samaritan city. There was a revival going on. Now, when we get here to the last part of chapter 8, 
we're reading about really the, the, uh, the zenith of Philip's evangelistic ministry. He's in a city. Uh, people are being healed. The place is filled with joy. Demons are being cast out. The gospel is being preached. People are being saved. And now God comes and knocks on Philip's door and he says, <clears throat> I want you to leave the revival and I want you to go to the desert because there's a guy there that I want you to talk to. Now God valued this man that we're going to meet, this Ethiopian eunuch, this individual, just as much as the multitudes that Philip was being used to minister to. And he is going to call Philip from the many to go to the one. And if there's one thing that stands out to me about Philip, and there's many to choose from, many things, this man full of the Holy Spirit and power, an effective evangelist, but the thing that stands out to me about Philip is his humility and obedience. Because I don't know how many Christian leaders would say that God has spoken to me to leave the revival and go to the desert because God wants me to go minister out there. Most of us, at least me, let me just talk for myself, I will not be so bold as to imply such impure motives to you. I would say, I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ. I am not leaving the revival. God needs me here. Right. That's the first lie. God doesn't need anybody, but God chooses to use people. So, the humility of Philip is really amazing because he's got something going on there that is of the Holy Spirit. And God says, look at, I want you to go down to the desert and I want you to preach. And he went. He didn't protest. He didn't think that such ministry was beneath him. He just obediently went. Because Philip's life gives us a great principle that we need to know, and that is this, that God's work is God's work. It's not our work. It's God's work. Philip understood that if God was moving him to this place, that the work that he is a part of would not lack. God had a plan and a purpose for whatever was going on there. And so we must understand that God's work is God's work. We're asked to participate in it, which is a great blessing, but God's work is not our work. So he had enough spiritual discernment to know that God didn't need him to fulfill his plan at that time and scenario, but he was needed to go to Gaza. <clears throat> and I don't know really if I could have done what Philip had did, but it's an amazing testimony to his humility. I'm hearing lots of tweets going on with phones. You want to put the kibosh on that? Thank you. Didn't that just kill the spirit? Mm -hmm. 
What? Someone's texting me? <laughs> the second thing that I see here is that it was God was preparing the work. In the work of salvation, which is the greatest work and the greatest miracle that can ever happen to anybody in any place in the world, is that God always arrives first. And what do I mean by that? I mean that God is always preparing and working in situations in people's hearts a readiness, a preparedness for the work in which He has called us to do before we even arrive. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that an encouraging promise? That God is preparing good works for us beforehand that we should just go out and walk in them? I find that really encouraging. It takes, boy, it takes all the pressure off of me in ministry to know that God is always arriving first and He is preparing good works beforehand before I even arrive. I believe that's what's happening today. I'm not worried about anybody out here because I know that if God is at work, He is doing His work, and He's arrived first in your life before I ever got seen. Thirdly, God used persecution the first time to get the gospel out to Samaria, but that's not the only tool in His toolbox, because now He sends an angel. <laughs> he, and so... An angel shows up to Philip and says, hey, I need you to go down to Gaza here. Now, if I had my choice between persecution and angel, I'd choose the angel. That would be nice. But Philip had enough spiritual understanding to realize that God can use both. So, at first, the Spirit directed Philip through persecution to leave his ministry in Jerusalem, and now through an angel... The Lord is directing Philip to leave his ministry in Samaria and go down to Gaza. Now, Philip knew by experience that God can direct by difficulties, but he also knew that that's not the only way that God can direct. Amen? God can use many different ways to speak to us. And so, now he is led or spoken to by an angel. And here's the question that I always have when I read this text. I go, why didn't God just send an angel down there to do it? You know, like, okay, angel, I want you to go and talk to Philip. I want you to tell Philip to go down to Gaza. Why don't you just say, angel, go to Gaza. Bypass the middleman. Save money. <clears throat> well, I don't know the answer to that except that I know that angels have never tasted of the glories of salvation, so they don't know what we know. And so it has pleased God to choose people to spread the gospel and to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course, when we do that, it's the greatest joy that a Christian can ever have is to be in the service of the Lord and to be used by the Lord, period. If you're looking for joy in your life, and you're looking for happiness in your life, and you're looking for meaning in your life, I can honestly tell you that to be in the service of the Lord 
is the most satisfying and joyful place that you'll ever be in your entire life, period. And it doesn't matter whether it's in Gaza with the one or in Samaria with If you are in the service of the Lord, doing what he wants you to do, he wants you to do it, you'll be okay. I can't think of a great theological word, but you'll be okay. So the angel said to him, Arise and go toward the south along the road which leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. (laughs) And he arose and he went, verse 27. Now Gaza was one of the five chief cities of the Philistines, and you might have heard it in the news lately, the Gaza Strip. Well, that's still Gaza today of the Gaza of old. And um, they had five major cities back then, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath. And interestingly, old Gaza had been destroyed early in the first century B.C., and a new city had been built near the coast, a road from Jerusalem to Egypt. However, an old road still ran through the ruins of old Gaza, And Luke's footnote is that this is the desert road that Philip is directed to go to. Now, how precise is that? There is the main road, and then there was the old road through the desert. And God says to Philip, I want you to go to the old road. This is desert. That's where your appointment lies. So, we have the two roads, and Philip is specifically directed to the right one, because that's where the appointment is going to take place. Now, this is what happened in verse 27. So, he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet, and the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him And the place in the scriptures where he read was, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and asked, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized them. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch was a seeker after the true God as he is shown by his long journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. 
He was a high-ranking official in the country, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Ethiopia in that day was a very large kingdom, of course, situated just south of Egypt. And to the Greeks and Romans of the day, it kind of represented the outer limits of the known world. The Ethiopian kings were believed to be incarnations of the sun god, and the everyday affairs of government were held to be beneath them. The real power lay with the queen mothers, known by their hereditary title, Candace, which is not a proper name, but an official title like Pharaoh or Caesar. So when we're talking about Candace, queen of Ethiopia, it's, that's not her name, that's her title. It's a royal title. And this man was in charge of her treasurer, and so in modern terms, he was the minister of finance for the entire country of Ethiopia. Now the text presents to us two perspectives on the Ethiopian eunuchs coming to faith in Jesus Christ. From above, hence God's perspective, we see the sovereign working of God in a man's heart in such a way that after making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he still is remaining in a, in a state of spiritual hunger. And he is reading a scroll of Isaiah as he is borne across the desert in a chariot. He encounters a spirit-sent ambassador of Christ, Philip, who leads him to the Savior. Now that's sovereignty, folks. That's God pulling the strings from a vantage point that we don't get to see. Now when I look back on my own story of how I became a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can also see two perspectives. On the one hand, I was searching. And my search led to choices. And my choices led to certain actions. Now, when I look back on it, I just go, these are the things that I was doing to search out for God. One of those choices was that somehow I got a hold of a Bible, and though having been raised in the Catholic Church my whole life, gone to Catholic schools, attended church regularly, I didn't know anything about the Bible. For all I knew, I could have been holding a rock from the planet Pluto. Yes, and in my universe, Pluto is still a planet. But here's what I do remember. I remember grabbing the Bible, not knowing if there was a beginning or an end. I didn't know if there was an Old or a New Testament. I just let the thing fall open, and it fell, to this day, it fell open to Matthew 13, and I began to read the parable of the sower. First time that I've ever read the Bible. I'm 17 years old. It laid right beside a 26 of Jack Daniels on one side and a 26 of Canadian Club Rye on the other. And in the middle was the Bible. I was an idiot. But I was searching, 
And I grabbed the Bible, and it fell open to the parable of the sower. And as I read the parable of the sower, the Holy Spirit was making those words just jump off the page and come alive to me. Which leads to my second thought. God was orchestrating the whole affair to bring me to faith. I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. I still don't even know how to spell sovereign. But that's what was happening. And when I look back on how I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can plainly see that there were no accidents. There were no coincidences. There was a divine plan unfolding to satisfy the thirst and the emptiness that was in my heart, which is what I believe is happening in this text here. There's two things going on. From above, we have God's sovereign plan unfolding, and from the Ethiopian's point of view, he's driving halfway across the world to go to Jerusalem He's not finding what he's looking for, and now he's returning reading the Bible. Now, you could be a follower of Jesus for a long time, and it's your regular pattern of worship to gather here on a Sunday morning with the saints. Or on the other hand, this could be your first visit to this wonderful Mecca, and you're hearing me speak from the Bible for the first time and perhaps you're putting the pieces together that this isn't an accident. Well, this is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's on the exact road that God wants him to be on. Not on the main road, but the desert road. The old road. And he's searching. And he's been to Jerusalem, but the religion there didn't satisfy him. Because religion can't satisfy you. And he leaves with more questions than answers. And he has a scroll of the book of Isaiah. How many of you have been to Israel and have actually seen, uh, you've been to the Dead Sea Caves, the Dead, and you've seen the Dead Sea Scroll in the museum there? It's not the actual one. It's a re replica of the real one. It's actually designed in every minute detail to look exactly like the scroll they have found in the Dead Sea uh, Caves. But uh, when you unroll that scroll, it goes from one, one wall to the other. That's the book of Isaiah. So when you have a scroll of a book, you got a lot of paper in your hands. Anyways, not only that, but he is reading the 53rd chapter, which is the intricate and detailed prophecy of the suffering servant, the Messiah. And not only is he reading the 53rd chapter, but he's reading the 7th and 8th verse, which actually describes Jesus' sacrificial death as a lamb. But God. And so, Philip goes up under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he says, hey, bud, do you have any idea what you're reading? And the guy says, I, I don't have a clue unless someone explains it to me. And Philip, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. 
Do you know that all Scripture, even the Old Testament, is about Jesus? Do you know that the early church, when they preached the good news, didn't have the New Testament because it wasn't written? And they were preaching the gospel of the Messiah from the Old Testament? For there was no New Testament in Philip's day. Remember Jesus when he had resurrected from the grave and he encountered the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Gave him the greatest Bible study ever because he showed from the Old Testament that he indeed was the Savior. And then when he gathered the disciples before he ascended, he, he basically took the disciples and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, Peter, in his first sermon, preached from the Old Testament the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you say, I don't like to read the Old Testament, I don't get much out of it, uh, you need to kind of reevaluate that statement. So here we have God working sovereignly. We have man obeying. And for Philip, it's like driving a truck through an open gate because the eunuch was just ready to believe, and he did believe. And surprise, surprise, they just happened to come upon a pool of water in the desert. And the eunuch says, hey, what's stopping me from being baptized since I'm a believer? And so if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, you may be baptized. So they get out of the chariot, and he is baptized. And you know that we have a baptismal service coming on the 18th of August. And every born-again believer should be baptized in water as a public testimony to an inward work of faith in your lives. It is a command in the scripture, it is a pattern in the church, and it is a step of obedience that brings great blessing. And if you haven't been, then you should come and talk to me and we'll get her done. So the mission is completed, verse 39. Now, when they had came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Astos, Azotos, Tus, yeah, that's where he was, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, the result of Philip's Samaritan ministry was great joy, and the result of his Ethiopian meeting was rejoicing. And everywhere that Philip went in simple obedience, joy, genuine joy, followed his ministry. And Philip disappeared, but he was not missed because the eunuch now had Christ. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, said that this man became the first missionary to the Ethiopians, and that might be true. He certainly would not have been able to keep the good news to himself, right? Now, interestingly, I just watched a movie on Netflix about how the Mossad, the uh, intelligence of Israel, in 1979 and in the early 80s, helped smuggle thousands upon thousands of Jewish Ethiopians out of Ethiopia and through Sudan and put them on ships so that they could escape genocide 
that was being perpetrated upon them by Muslim extremists. They were being slaughtered. And so Israel wanted to rescue these Ethiopian Jews. You know what they did? Which has really nothing to do with the sermon, but it's interesting. Is that they found an old hotel that was built right on the edge of uh, the Mediterranean. And uh, they opened a diving company. And all they did basically is operate a fake hotel and they brought smuggled Jews in across the Sudan, and then the commandos would come in with their zodiacs from a boat 12 miles offshore, and they would take them back out to the boat, and they rescued thousands and thousands of Ethiopian Jews. I wonder whether God saw that when he sent Philip down there to the one. I think he did. I think he did. Story's amazing in so many ways. So what can we take away today? Well, go where the Holy Spirit leads you and not wherever you want to go. What might seem logical in our eyes and a great ministry, who knows what God has. But if we follow God, we know that it's because God's got a plan. God can lead in a lot of ways, be it persecution or by an angel. God's arithmetic is divine. He sees the many, and he sees the one. And he is as interested in the one as in the many. And if God sends you to many, go. And if he sends you to the one, go. For in God's eyes, one is as important as many. And what he desires is for you and I to just simply walk in obedience to him. Fourthly, God arrives at your destination first. He is always preparing the way. He is always plowing the soil. And he is always working things from every possible angle. There is a divine sovereign plan going on. There is a choices of free will that we're making. And it all seems to fit together. And if you try to figure it out, don't waste your time. Just go. All of Scripture preaches Christ and use all of it to preach Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, there's water all around Kelowna. We can get her done. What would hinder you? Seven, joy follow Philip's ministry, and it always will when we walk in the Holy Spirit's guidance. And lastly, your being here today is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not even a coincidence. It is a divine orchestration. Just like the Ethiopians rode, the word, the messenger, the message, so today it is with you. You're not here because of some sense of accident or coincidence. I believe you're here because I've read the Bible, and the Bible tells me that God is interested in you, and he loves you. And because he loves you, he brought you here today to hear the message of his love. Just as he brought Philip to the Ethiopian, I tell you the same God loves you just as much, and I tell you the same message 
as Philip told the Ethiopian. Jesus died for you, the Lamb of God, and that if you will believe on Him and put your faith in Him, that you can become a child of God, a follower of the Lord Jesus. And that is really the big picture, isn't it? And that is really what it is all about. So I ask you to think about that as we close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much today for your word and for the simplicity of it. And thank you, Lord, for how you're leading each and every one of us today in the many or the one. Help us to have faith just to follow you. And Lord, for all of those that are here, uh, may this message speak to their heart that it was your plan and your desire for them to hear it. And may, Lord, this word root deep into their heart and never let go until, Lord, they come to faith in you. If you'd like to do it right now, you don't need a degree in rocket science. It's simply by yielding and believing. And it's, it's not the prayer that saves you. It's the volitional will behind the decision of saying, Jesus, I turn my life over to you. And uh, I believe that you brought me here today because you orchestrated it. And you love me. And so I'm laying it down. And I'm uh, repenting and turning from my own ways. And I'm going to follow you from this day forward.